Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. My name is Colin Hunter, and today I'm joined by Robert Wiley. So what would I have done without Robert over these last two years of the pandemic? With the launch of the book, he was my editor. He was almost a spiritual and soulmate for me over this, this period of time. His thinking style, his background, which you'll hear about today, is such an inspiration. has been a, a rock for me in, in uh, what I've been going through since so launching the book, uh, Be More Wrong. And you'll hear today about his journey from Germany to France to learning and development, his diagnosed with Parkinson's and his challenges, challenges to deal with that, that illness. And starting to think about his his lifestyle, how he writes poetry, how he creates that. You'll also get some tips around the editing of the book and the formulation of the book, which we'll talk about today. So I'm looking forward to to introducing the amazing Robert Wiley to you all, and hopefully you will find exactly what I got out of him as well, an inspiration to me. I'm delighted just to have a conversation about the man that is Robert Wiley. Robert, welcome. Hello. Thank you for such a glowing introduction. I don't know quite how to follow it. <laughs> Let's have a conversation and then the people will understand a bit more about why why we get on so well and how it's helped the book, I think, is what I'd love to, to do today, Robert. But let's go into a bit of your background, because you've got a fascinating background. I mean, you live in Leith, in near Edinburgh, but tell the folks a bit about your background, who you are. I'm from the west coast of Scotland initially, and I lived there until I was 18, and I went to the University of Glasgow, where I studied French and German language and literature for two years before going abroad. And I lived in Paris and the Loire and then Cologne and Berlin and Lübeck for two years before coming down to Glasgow and finishing my degree. So I think of myself first and foremost as a linguist. But I discovered quite quickly that the academic world didn't pay very well. <laughs> and I sold my soul to Mammon and joined a bank. Nice. And I discovered that I couldn't add up, so I wasn't a very good banker. <laughs> and I retrained as an occupational psychologist <laughs> and stayed working within the corporate environment as a coach, stroke mentor, heavily involved in succession planning and stuff like that. Nice. And then I, when I gave up corporate life, I did some freelance work, critical reading or editing, as you call it, for a couple of people. And then I went to Berlin to revisit my German. Then I went to Tucson, Arizona, and retrained as an interior designer. Wow. And after that, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's, which was a bit of an inhibition for my career. But it's turned out very interestingly in that I do a lot of critical reading. I've started to do some writing on my own. And my life takes over quietly from Leith in quite a, an international way. <laughs> I love it. 
I mean, Leith for me is famous. I mean, my daughter listens to Sunshine on Leith. The proclaimers, anybody who's got the 500 miles in their head, even if you're listening in the US or across, everybody's heard the proclaimers. But but Leith is an amazing place, isn't it? It's Tell the listeners a bit about Edinburgh and Leith. Yeah. It's technically since 1920, Leith has been part of Edinburgh. But born and bred leaders, I don't think, feel that. Mm-hmm. And the atmosphere in Leith certainly feels differently to me. It feels much more like Glasgow or the West Coast. I don't think I'm offending anyone by saying that. <laughs> it has more edge for me than the bits of Edinburgh everybody knows, like the new town or the old town. Yeah, And you never know quite what you're going to meet, see, or hear when you're in the streets here. It's, mm-hmm. it's very stimulating. I love that. And without risk of alienating Glaswegians and Edinburgh folk, for those who don't know, Edinburgh is described as almost the posher side, if you understand that expression of Scotland. And Glasgow's got that edge and that grit. That's uh, the way you describe it. It's very, it's almost polar in terms of your your love for Edinburgh or Glasgow. So you probably have alienated a few people, Robert. What, yes. what the hell? <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> Absolutely. And tell me, because that alienating people is not your way, but there is a there's something about your background, the languages, the writing, the psychology, the journey that you've been on that that makes it quite an, an eclectic mix. And for those who can't see you at the moment, there is also something about, you know, that your art, the way that your your apartment is is decorated, you have so many influences in your life that come from different sides. Tell me a bit about the, the art and the backgrounds that, that drives you. Oh, it's, it's all very personal in terms of pictures or sculpture or other artifacts, books. They're all stuff that has got usually very personal meaning for me. Mm. I don't buy through a gallery. I've always just seen it and bought it or Mm. gone straight to the artist if I liked something, which from an investment point of view isn't particularly the best thing to do. Mm. But I don't buy for investment. And for me, colour is really important. Mm. Vibrancy is really important. People either like it or they don't. It's interesting on a Zoom call how many people position themselves neutrally against grey or white or even have a backdrop. Well, because they don't want people to be distracted by what's behind them. Well, I'm afraid I quite like what's behind me. And if you're distracted by it, that could be a good thing too. <laughs> I was just about to say, because I'm looking, which I love, and when we got together before COVID uh, and I came round to your place, my favourite bit is the bit behind you, which is, for those who are listening, it's a fridge sculpture that is like a robot and has a almost a, a light as its head, two little boots, 
and then a half open fridge door. So if you can imagine a bright yellow, hopefully the yellow is the right color behind Robert and Robert is, is dressed in tartan. So the Scottish is, is there. There's an amazing tie, but your inspiration is also Vivian Westwood. Am I right? Is that, that's your... she, she is an inspiration. Yes. Yeah. But the fridge is by a friend of mine called Pauline father. Uh-huh. And the robots, I think Robot Circus is the trade name. Ah. Most of the robots light up. This uh-huh. one doesn't. They're all vintage. The fridge is vintage dolls house American. Everything's from the 40s and 50s and recycled or upcycled. Nice. And this is called Austerity Britain. Nice. Because you open the fridge door and it's empty and it doesn't light up. Nice. I, I mean, for me, that that in that just that little bit of vocal piece that we've done there, that says so much about why we get on so well, but also about you. But what you've you've done in there is you've brought something to me which I didn't have when I was was writing the book. I was writing the book, and I had this these ideas that I wanted to put in place, and and I needed to find somebody who could understand where I was going, but bring such difference. To what we were, we were doing, and and I, I think I found that in you, and I definitely found that in you. What I've loved though is just the the ability for you to bring some of the literary side of your background, which you want to talk about in a second now to to the book. You also brought the the, the background from the bank and the occupational psychologist piece to the the book, so you brought an understanding, but you also brought a, a beautiful challenging space to be for me in terms of challenging my thinking, never in a, I disagree, but more in a, here's some other opportunities or other ways of of looking at it. Tell me what it was like to go through that process of what working with me, we all know is a, is a pain, Robert, but you know, what was it like to go through the process? I never found a pain, but it's challenging because there are two things you do quite regularly. One of them is to pack so much into one sentence where there are probably four or five points Mm. to be pulled out, teased out, and not be missed because you put them into one sentence. A reader will only take away what first hits them Mm. and they need to be teased out. second thing that I found you do is almost the exact opposite. You make a leap. Mm. And there is an elision between one idea and the other mm. that needs, for a reader, there needs to be that your thinking steps have been clearly spelled out. Most people who work with me, Rob, would love to have you around in the background to actually work <laughs> out what the hell I was saying. So that, <laughs> I think you hit the nail on the head there. You were just about to say something there. Just those steps in my thinking have been really, really important because it's taken me three and a half years to to write the book. And I've probably been clearer in the last 18 months to a year working with you than, than I was before. In a, an indulgent way, what, what inspired you about the content? Less about me and the, the way I was writing, but what inspired you about the content? I think how accessible you make the things. My take on this particular world of leadership development is that it seems to be a bit fragmented. 
Mm. And people are going into details about individual elements of it. And you bring back the kind of completeness of being a leader. It's not just about one aspect of leadership. It's about you bringing your authentic self mm. to the party and leading as a whole person. Mm. One of the chapters kicks off with a story about Manchester United and how they were absolutely fantastic and then their leader moved on with an approved successor and yet they they struggled. Mm. And the importance of that individual leader and everything that, that emanates from them you make exciting and accessible mm. and you draw people in. I think that is a big thing to be able to do today, to pick up the pieces that are lying about, see it through your personal lens mm. and make it available to me and anyone else who cares to pick up the book. I love that. And, and again, I want to come back to your story because <laughs> Parkinson's, for me, is it's amazing what you do, but you have certain systems and habits in your life to help you with that, to cope with it. Tell us a bit about your, your because there's a hero's journey in there for me around <laughs> what you've done. And I know you're a very humble man. Tell us about the, the journey and how you've taken on Parkinson's and you, you live with it naturally in some ways with some of your video recording and some of the artwork that you've been doing, how you've been telling your story. Yeah. It's not been easy. The diagnosis took about 15 months to confirm. And it was confused by the fact that I had and always have had an essential tremor. Mm. So it took a while to separate the two out and treat the two. And I had deep brain stimulation, which is an invasive brain surgery. I have a little controller. Mm -hmm. um, and two things in my head. Yeah. And um, it's regulated, but my balance is iffy. My voice is going. Mm. And the voice thing is particularly important to me. I used to sing. I used to do a lot in the theatre. Mm. And I can't do that anymore. So it was important to me to find another voice another way of expressing what was going on within me. And I met this young filmmaker who stopped me in the street and said, may I make your portrait? Well, apart from being vain <laughs> and finding that irresistible, yes. just the way he asked the question, may I make your portrait? Yeah. I thought it was an interesting location. So I said, yes, thinking I'd never hear from him again. Yeah. And six months later, he came up with this idea of doing a short film, which is going to be screened as part of Mental Health Awareness Festival in Scotland. And it's not fundamentally about Parkinson's. Mm. There are other films being, short films being screened at the same time about people who live with disability or illness or people who care for people with disability or illness. And that's one way I have 
of expressing myself because my physicians are very keen that I behave in a certain way for my own benefit, of course. Yeah. Well, I use a cane. Mm. I won't use the articulated NHS stick because mm. it's ugly and there's no, no amount of tinsel that's going to <laughs> dress it up. But that's bad for my back. And so I, I want to say, well, leave me to decide. That's important. Another voice is I've been writing some poetry. Another expression is that I read for the Highland Book Prize mm -hmm. as a voluntary reader. It's been really interesting finding different ways, and especially during COVID, when I've been as good as gold, restricted to home, Hate, not hating every second, but hating the inability just to go out and be social. Oh, no. You find what you can, and it's amazing what you can find from home. Yeah. It's, it's funny because the COVID piece, I, I've been desperate to get up and go out for, because you and I have a, a love of wine, you know, so I've been desperate to get up and share that, go out and have a, a good meal to, to get Milder out as well and, uh, and share that, that glass with you to, to celebrate what we've done. And we will. We will. It will happen very, very shortly. I want to pick up on the, it's amazing that that has been shown next week as part of the mental health piece that's going on in Scotland. There was one thing when I was watching that that uh, I can't remember the exact words, but it was the choice of uh, almost I used to worry about what people think and now I don't. And there was a piece in there. Can you remember what it was? Because it really, I empathized with it, but it was a powerful statement. The only element I can think of is I say somewhere there I've never had any problem being disbelieved. Yes. Is that? It's that one. Yeah. And so the obvious next step is where you can make yourself sound interesting by lying all the time. Yeah. But I can't I simply can't be bothered to lie because I forget what I've said. <laughs> yeah. And I, it's about identity and authenticity. Mm -hmm. And having your identity as you have either created it or wanted to be known, mm -hmm. undermined by something you have no control over. Mm -hmm. And how do you remain true to yourself through that transformation? Because mm -hmm. most people want to look at it as it's not called Parkinson's disease mm -hmm. or nothing. And I hate, I prefer to talk about just Parkinson's. Yeah. Not because I'm in denial, but because it's a transformation as I get old. And that is inevitable. Mm. And the transformation could go one way, it could go another. It's a transformation related to my age that I cannot avoid. Mm. And how do I remain true to myself throughout that transformation? Yeah, love that. And I, I love the lie because it, it has a resonance to me around the refreshingly direct, which is, you know, there's a difference between honesty and not lying. Yeah. So there's a difference between, you know, when I put honesty in my brand statement a while ago and people said, well, you, you're not honest to me. You don't tell me exactly what you think of me all the time. But there is this piece about not lying. And if people ask you to, to give your truth and your version of the truth to people, yeah. Yes. And 
So if we go back to from there to the, the book, because there is this truth telling that you did with the book and worked in with the book. But there was also this hilarious balance and challenge we've had as we've gone through when we've been doing the editing and structuring that in some ways we've both been making it up as we go along. Because this is my first book. And this, in theory, is the first time you've been involved in this publishing route with me. Is that the, the case? Yeah. It's the first time I've seen it beyond the critical reading stage. Yeah. Yeah. And for those who are out there, recommend Robert completely to do that critical reading stage. For a book title of Be More Wrong, and it's actually how many iterations and how many thoughts and how many pieces we've done in it, what have been your learnings out of there for you in terms of, for people listening who want to write their own book, what have been your learning coaching me, mentoring me, but also just in the process? Is not to lose sight of what you want to achieve out of the book mm-hmm. and not to be worried about gaps that you feel are there at present, that you you know you know there's something missing, mm-hmm. but just to trust your own judgment or history to provide something that will bridge a gap and fill in those missing steps. And it's, I don't know if I should say this, but the very first response you had from the editors... Oh, say it, say it, because it was was a wake-up, wasn't it? It wasn't a wake-up, it was shockingly (laughs) negative (laughs) and wasn't at all encouraging. And I think anybody would have been, it would have been very easy to have just thrown in the towel at that stage mm. because their feedback was not constructive and no help. Well, it could be regarded as constructive by saying what you need is, I thought, well, I found it soul destroying. Uh, maybe it's my Scottish Presbyterian background and me that thought, well, that's my my six lashes for today, and yes, must do better. <laughs> can be a very useful background some of the time. Yeah, absolutely. And therefore, we, we go into... It's fascinating, the, the gaps, because you're a writer of poetry, and I was reading this piece from Ozan Barrel yesterday, I think like a rocket scientist, and he was sharing in his, his blog about how he's writing his new book. And he had this amazing piece for me that I'd never really thought about, where he was he was thinking about how he writes a book. And he he writes almost as if it's 10 chapters, if I get what he was talking about yesterday. He was talking about writing some ideas down for the chapters and then leaving them and going away for a while, for a month, two months, and then coming back fresh to the ideas. And it, it, it's fascinating because the three and a half years almost gestation period for the book was a bit like that, going to Cape Cod, writing for a while, leaving it for a while, coming back to it, you having a look at it, doing those things. But but that thinking process to take somebody from an initial idea to the end, how do you work yours? Because the poetry you, you, and you use poetry as a way of helping Parkinson's because you were reading poetry, recording poetry for me in the background as a way of helping with the Parkinson's. But how do you write your poetry? I need an idea and it's usually an image. 
I'll see something that will trigger something else or hear something that will trigger something else. Mm. And then I fiddle and then I sleep. And if I'm really lucky, I'll wake up with an improvement on the initial fiddle. Yeah, I love that. Sometimes it can be months Mm -hmm. and I won't look. And it's not deliberately, I've just gone off the idea and I know it's not complete. Mm. And then I'll come back, something will trigger something else, I'll come back to another day and it will be clear what to do next. And that sounds terribly not very empirical. <laughs> I do think it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, Robin, another thing that I'm fascinated on the, the poetry side, but also for the book, because you talked about how I was able to bring these things together and, and almost the system side, but unless I've got a passionate about it and unless I'm living it and having, a, as I would describe, a pain point in it, it's very difficult for me to... To, to be passionate about something. So I, I'm definitely not passionate about Excel spreadsheets. I'm not passionate about doing financial calculations as you know, with your numbers and going back to the bank piece. Thinking about the passion and how you, you distill that, because you've got so many passions in your life. How, do you, how would you recommend that people distill passions? I think the first step is really to be aware of it. Some people haven't pinned down I could say from the outside oh they're really passionate about something but it's not always clear they've worked that out for themselves I think you have to do that first Mm. from there it's applying a degree of focus what's your expression focus not sprinkle sprinkle not focus focus not sprinkle depending on where you want to go because some people focus too much and yeah. it becomes it becomes bland. Whereas you know, there's a piece for me about there's a degree of sprinkle to go get ideas, which is what you're talking about. And then, so it's divergent thinking, convergent thinking, is a, the technical term. Interesting. And it's you might discard a good bit of sprinkle today, but don't ever bin it because you never know when that bit of sprinkle could find its own place later on. And it's, I keep a journal or a commonplace book where I write things down. Interesting. That interests me for literary things. Mm. And I've got a book of tear sheets torn from magazines Mm. for design. And every so often I go through them and I think, oh, yes, that sparked something. I can do something with it. Mm. So never underestimate the timing of your ideas Mm. or your sprinkly thoughts. They might not be just right, but don't bin them. Have a way of recording them or saving them and make time just to flick through. I go through my commonplace books when I've got a quiet moment or I go through my tear sheets if I've got a design issue that I'm trying to solve, looking for other ideas, mm. just don't, in that respect, I'm a hoarder. Mm. It's great. You prompted a couple of thoughts that I think are, uh, are amazing. One is this fact that you can't almost, you can't tickle yourself is an expression. So you can't observe yourself a lot of the time. 
and you, you don't know what your the the thing in you that could be your passion, your your true north. And so many times, a bit like me with imposter syndrome, so many people I come across and I go, do you not realize what you're about? Sarah Gardner is one of my good friends and clients and she's in the book. And she is a classic where she has this amazing impact when she did an event with us where the women in the room looked at her as a role model and they wanted to talk to, particularly the younger women, wanted to come and talk to her afterwards. And it's almost in her head. She's saying, so why would somebody want to come and talk mm. to me? So that observational piece from the outside is important. I wanted to, to, to come off one of your points. I, I once sat in a Costa coffee. Costa coffee is a chain store. It wouldn't be my choice now. Friend Gingers, shout out to Friend Gingers, which is more niche and boutique coffee place. I love my coffee. But I was sat next to a gentleman and I'd been in this Costa and used to sit in the window to write my thoughts early morning, seven o'clock in the morning, I'd sit there. It's probably seven till 8.30, drinking coffee, big bucket of really strong coffee to get get me going in the morning. Write my ideas, I get my thinking going before I started work. And there's this gentleman sitting next to me and he would would come in and every day he came in, same thing. He would ride his bike in, park it, lock it up, come in, get his coffee and he'd sit. And he had a little moleskin book. And I was fascinated by what he was doing. One day he reached his fingers into his cup and he took out the grounds of the coffee from the the cup and he smudged it onto a page. And then he sat back and looked at the coffee grounds smudged on the page. He took out a drawing pen and he started to, to draw around the smudge. I was like, oh, just, I had to, being curious, I had to go in and say, excuse me, I hope you don't mind, but tell me what you were doing. And he said, I'm, I'm trying to get some creative ideas. So I, I got talking to him and it turns out he was, he was the competitor to scarf in terms of the drawings in Telegraph and the, the newspapers. So when there was a, a Telegraph, a cartoon needed to be drawn. He was the alternative person who would draw the cartoons. He was now retired, but his inspiration for his new line of artwork was a smudge on a paper. And I describe my life as a smudge. It's a massive smudge. And it's about that ability to take that smudge and craft some little bits of ideas and thoughts from that. But I just thought that was a brilliant way. And he, he showed me the design that happened about three weeks later, which was metal sculpture that had been created from that one smudge. And I loved that. So that's that's what we're talking about, isn't it? Yes. You don't know where the inspiration's coming from. Yeah. And you can start with, I mean, you said that you wrote this book partly as a way to honour the memories of your grandparents and your parents. I mean, that might have been your starting point. I don't know whether you think you've achieved it. It's an interesting, because actually my father passed away this year, which is a tough thing for me to go through. But what was the, the fascinating and the, the, the real revelation for me was I never really knew my dad in his work. So being a doctor, he invented with another person, Echo for baby's hearts to identify abnormalities in baby's hearts and did some of the founding work. But he was also a teacher and it was only towards the end and his death that I got to talk to a few people like Jonathan, who was one of his, his students and worked with him. 
And when Jonathan wrote down what my dad was about and all the people, and I saw the articles that went in the newspapers and the Telegraph and the, the, you know, the Cambridge Press, what was written down was me. <laughs> Fundamentally, it was me, but I'd never seen that because my relationship with my father, my father was coming home tired, slightly grumpy, yeah, and I can associate with that, you know, tired and slightly grumpy, I could see myself in there. But when I, they started to talk about what he did and the impact he had and, and the way he would call somebody in, one of his students in, to share something he just learned, getting curious, that was fundamentally me, and I started to realize something different. So there is something about the book is still being more wrong. Dad was majorly wrong in his life he was careful in terms of full of care about what he did on the the development of the echo for baby's hearts and and the treatment of his patients and one of the things he always always said was he wanted to be a professor but by the end of his career to be a professor you needed to be selling your soul to the 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 art of getting investment in to get research and all he was interested in was the patients and the, the clinician side of his work. And there's something in that for me. So, yes, I think I went away from that, but I came back to it with the death of my father to realize that actually I'd rather be a practice leader than a thought leader in what I do. And I think the book is written in a practice leader way rather than a thought leader way. So it's an interesting question. Sorry, just a small digression, but that's that's where I've come to. Yeah. I mean, I'm not pushing the business, but <laughs> yeah. what is next on the stalks? Well, it's it's interesting because you know everybody says it's it's a bit like that moment where you're writing a book and you say I'm never going to do this again. Yeah, it's so painful. Yeah. It's no, no, no. and I, I you know I, I can't equate to you know when when I talk to my wife and said another baby. No, I'm never doing another baby. And then suddenly you know a little baby is around. And she's like, oh, okay, you know. So there's there's something in there about never again. But actually, the more I've got into it, the more it's prompted a thought because a couple of thoughts have, have come in here that the playgrounds piece, which we talk about in the book, but people are starting to really question. So how do you create playgrounds? What type of playgrounds? And therefore there's a piece for me about playgrounds. The real, the interesting one for me is, is if you think about the, the life I've had, even just that story about my father, for most people, their life is a degree of not quite survival, but a degree of getting a grip on things that are happening to them. And we created a model a while ago based on a, 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 a psychology model, which is survival. So once you've got survival, you get to stability and then you get thrive. Now we changed that slightly for organizational leadership when we said it is about getting a grip on things, yeah, then stability and thrive. So I do think there's a thing about this traction stability thrive model is the one for people to get because you and I know that to get a start as a leader, you need to focus as we've talked about, you need to pick an area that you want to work on and then you need to create a playground then you need to start to think about what am I testing in that playground? Getting traction on that skill, that ability, that understanding, then getting stability in that and then moving on is a key part. So I think that's the idea of a book and I'm probably giving my idea of a book away to somebody else and I'm probably going to write it, but that's the trust. Of, that's where I think I'm going to go yeah, with the next book. Mm. 
So we'll start the journey, Robert, on that and, and go for that. I want to come back to, to you because it's um, for people listening. There's a story of a man who's west coast of Scotland, Glasgow, gone off to Berlin, languages, love of wine, passion of poetry, passion of art, creative, living in that space that is Parkinson's here now. What next for you? Oh, I'll take it a day at a time. Mm. I won't turn down an opportunity, mm. and they can come from wherever. So the opportunity to make a documentary came out of nowhere. Mm. It was pure chance that I had gone to Milders on the day I did, because I, I had a big, I was performing in the 2019 Mm. Edinburgh Festival mm. and I had a huge gap between shows and Milder lived just along the road so mm. I phoned her up and said can I invite myself round and we caught up and what we each had been doing and she said I know someone that you might like to speak to and that's how it all happened mm. so I, I'm a great believer in chance and the way friendships play a big part in that chance is very important to me because it's all nothing happens immediately mm. it's i think it's your version of pay it forward yeah you just you don't know what's going to come back at you and so you do your best to make sure it's not going to come back and bite you <laughs> yes you wanted to come back and say hi Hello, what a good thing we've met. And that happens quite a lot. So I'm quite optimistic. Yeah. But I think a day at a time to answer your question. No, that's great. And I, I think that's a great place for us to almost bring this to an end because it, the, I'm a great believer in life that you create a space that want, people want to come in or you create a space that people don't want to come in. And I think if I summarize you and I and the relationship and the person I've experienced is Robert Wiley. That's that person who has this amazing creative flair, amazing ability to, to go down to the detail plus keeping that passionate creative space as well. And for me, let's, the, the future is another book, Robert, the future is other things as well, but yeah. I'm fascinated to understand, see what you're doing and work on that. Thank you very much for the conversation today and i'm sure that uh, the listeners have got a huge amount out if they want to find out more about you where would they find that oh i suppose the first point would be instagram mm -hmm. yeah. and that's rsmw002 yeah let's get you back on a uh, a podcast in the near future once we've got the next book up and maybe we start a, a book part of the podcast that we get uh, people to understand what it's like to write a book and maybe get some ideas about how we could do it better ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> that would be great. I think there's something about creativity is often put on a pedestal. Yeah. And it comes in the most obvious shape or form mm. if you are open to it. And that's why I never took anything away that you have been attracted to for whatever reason, hold on to it because it will come into its own sometime. Amazing, amazing way to end. Robert, a joy to talk as always, and thank you for being on the podcast. 
Well, thank you. Well, that was Robert. Amazing man, amazing background. His stories about the video he's creating, about his life, his identity. I just love the way he thinks. When you get a, a, a message from Roberts, it always includes some deep thoughts, some reading, some work that he's doing or trying to work on. His latest thinking is about identity and voice. And so therefore he's doing some wider reading, but he comes from a, such a different place to my thinking that I get inspired by looking at that and thinking about that. So delighted that you got the chance to listen to him and hear his story and how uh, he has challenged himself with Parkinson's uh, to find a new path and new way and used his art and his, his passion for living in Westwood and other areas of poetry um, to, to, to really provide himself with an inner energy which um, shines through for all. So delighted you got that chance. Love to hear your feedback. Love to welcome you in another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast very soon. <laughs>